City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's the first Wednesday of the month, the second day of winter, and I think we all know it's winter, and um, it's Transport Day, therefore, so our regular transport commentator, John McPherson's on the on, he's on the line, he's with us uh, from the start of the program today, Meg Kimber's out there, Karina's pressing the buttons or whatever she does and doing them bloody brilliantly, I'm Kevin Healy, and um, we'll get on to transport later, John, but there's um, there's a fair bit happening, even though not many people are using public transport, there's quite a lot happening in the transport area. Oh yeah, as always. <laughs> Transport's still a large part of everybody's life. Yep, and we'll we'll, we'll certainly get round to it uh, in about uh, in about twenty minutes, half an hour or so. But Meg, um, again, have you got any wonderful things you wanted to say to us today? Uh... I mean, good morning, everybody, and um, good morning, Kevin and John and Karina. Obviously, I guess the the main kind of news that's coming out of America is the public response to another. Uh, death of a black person at the hands of the American police. So I guess just a reminder at the start of the show that we're on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and um, since the uh, in inquiry into Aboriginal deaths in custody, there have been 420 deaths of Aboriginal people in police custody. So just a reminder um, that, that the same kind of systemic racism operates here in Australia uh, similarly to how it does in America and yeah just sending you know uh, wishes and um, and hope that Australia will respond in a similar way uh, to the next yeah. death in custody in Australia. It's quite tragic and now you're seeing the usual suspects blaming the people protesting rather than the murderers um, for the whole thing. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah and with and with the Trump, the Trump factor added in, which makes seems to make every situation that much worse. Yeah, and interesting how um, the the difference between the response to protests and the response to coronavirus, and how quickly troops and and other resources can be mobilised. Good point. Yeah, <laughs> to protect private property, but not to protect citizens. And of course, Black Americans have been like the uh, disproportionately higher higher affected population by coronavirus as well. Yeah. So. yeah, and that same thing applies to a different area where you've got uh, the government now saying on coronavirus that it's listening to the scientists, to the doctors and their advice, and that's what it's acting on, something it doesn't say when it comes to climate change, for instance. <laughs> yes, yeah, the other major existential threat to human existence. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The Conservatives seem to think it's an existential threat to their political party. <laughs> right. We can only hope. Yeah, it will be if, like, no one survives. <laughs> yeah. Hang on now. Sorry, I've got to have a break. I just want to pour the tea. We have to have that sound. Here we are. Oh, so soothing. Right. That's done for the day. That's it. Um, <laughs> but um, speaking of um, Donald Trump, he's threatening guns and savage dogs on his own American people. But here we've got a Prime Minister saying we're going to put the guns down, we're going to put the weapons down. 
which I find interesting because he's they've always argued for years now, ever since, in fact, Hawke came in with his Get Australia Together and the Accord, which is kind of what Morrison's trying to do now. Uh, we've seen the, the authorities and the bosses say there's no class struggle in this country and if ever you raise anything that suggests there might be, then you're expressing class envy and all those things. And yet, he now says we're putting the weapons down. Now, he, I think he must mean the unions because we know that the bosses and the government don't have weapons because they don't believe in class struggle, so there's no such thing. But therefore, when he talks about employers and the government putting their weapons down, is he suggesting there just might be a bit of class struggle going on in this society? Yeah, well, it's interesting that, that um, the union busting bill didn't pass. Mm, that's true. It wasn't, it wasn't persisted with. They, they um, called, a, called a truce last week on the bill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been interested in the attitude of um, Sally McManus, the um, boss of the ACTU. She seems to have been, you know, walking very gently on this stuff. She, I don't know if she feels that there is possibly some, some hope to come out of the situation or she just feels it's best strategically to start out, you know, being quiet and calm about it. I don't know. Yeah, well, it's interesting that because there were a number of people on the left, I think, suggesting the ACTU is, might even sell out because it, in mm. fact, sold out, but a different ACTU. Yes. Um back in the, the Hawke Accord era. Yeah. But I heard Donald, Don, Don Sutherland, who's a, um, a, a commentator on industrial relations I respect, who regularly make comments on, on the Saturday morning program here, the Solidarity Breakfast program. And he was saying that, in fact, he has great faith in Sally and believes that she's going in with, you know, knowing exactly what she's up to and what she wants to get out of it. And he doesn't think, he thinks people who say she's going to sell out have been grossly unfair. Now, I, I guess the proof will be in the pudding in the end of it all, but hopefully she is going to go in and, and fight for, uh, against those things. Like they're trying to get rid of the better off overall clause, the boot scheme in industrial relations, which means that nothing can be agreed to if a worker is, is not better, if any worker is worse off overall. And the bosses are desperate to have that taken out, which means they obviously want to make some workers at least worse off overall. Well, that, that, that sounds clear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so there. Um, you know. So hopefully she'll uh, go in. But of course, what's going to happen also is the government said if it can't be resolved by September, I think is the date they've given, they're going to pass legislation anyway for what they want, which are all those things getting rid of better off overall test and and. Um, and other, other attacks on workers they want to make. And so if, in fact, no agreement's reached, I suspect they're going to then, of course, blame the trade unions, saying it was the trade unions who held us up, who wouldn't cooperate, who, et cetera, et cetera, those, those lines they come up with. So that's likely to happen, I suspect. It's a pretty, it's a pretty short period from now to September to uh, actually um, bash something into, you know, into shape too. Very short. Indeed, yes. So it's hard to see that there's a lot of sincerity on the government side. <laughs> I think there's none. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're sincere in what they want to get for the bosses, I suppose. <laughs> well, somebody like Sally, though, has got to, has got to operate as, as if she at least pretends to believe, <laughs> believe there's some sincerity there. That's the trouble. Yeah, as I say, well, I guess we'll see what comes out in the end of it all, but... Uh... And the Australian Industry Group last week said, in fact, that things like holiday leave should be taken out of the 
process. Uh, their argument is that it's already in, enshrined in law and etc. But they're even moving on that already. I think so. We'll see what happens. I saw a, heard an interesting um, commentary this morning on Talkback Radio somewhere. You know the um, the way the weekend penalty rates have been wound back and are going to be wound back more. I think this was an assessment. Of, of what's happened, you know, since that happened. You know, claim was, well, if we wind back these terrible penalty rates, more people will be employed. And um, apparently there's absolutely no indication that any more people have been employed because of the penalty rates winding back. It's, it's, um, it's been entirely as you'd expect. The, um, the money saved has gone into the boss's, uh, boss's pockets. Yeah, that that was obvious from the start, wasn't it? Because they, if if they said they couldn't afford to pay penalty rates, but the money they were paying on penalty rates they'd employ other people, then there was a flaw in their logic from the outset. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. But we're all supposed to believe, you know, we're all supposed to believe it and go along with it. But so, you know, again, it's the same government that's now, you know, offering this this three month period of, you know, everything wonderful is going to happen. So. Mm. I'm sorry, it's um, pretty It's pretty thin, shall we say. <laughs> Very thin indeed. Look, I've got some good news this week. I mean, well, probably all saw last week in the, in the press, the, uh, the federal court ruled against logging companies in favour of a group called Friends of Leadbeater's Possum Inc., who, who argued that the, the regional forestry agreement at 26 coops and the habitats had not been followed properly, the proper code of practice, and it found it was likely these habitats would again be threatened if logging continued at more than 40 other coops in the region, and uh, there now. So that's that's a very good decision. Again, it was, was against big forests, actually. The, the state forest, the, the state forest so-called company that, that gives the logging rights to these other companies, but it's a strange thing out of it because the Environmental Justice Australia senior lawyer, Dania Jacobs, said the result set up a new legal precedent. The logging industry has operated for 20 years as if it doesn't have to comply with our federal environment laws because of regional forest agreements. This case overturns that position and clearly finds that the exemption can and will be lost where threatened species protections are not complied with. Friends of Leadbeater's possum spokesman Steve Meacher said no government was exempt from rules to protect species. We must stop the senseless logging of critical threatened species habitat or we will drive them to extinction. But they're now saying they have to go and um, get an injunction to stop the company's continuing work. So I find that interesting. If, if the ruling was made, then surely the work should stop automatically rather than having to get another injunction now to, to stop it. But uh, it's still a good decision. Mm, that is good news. Yeah. But it's um it's down to a few coops, isn't it? That where the where the Leadbetter's possum lives, it's 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 a ridiculously tiny amount of their habitat that's left, from what I've read. Yeah, this this is in the Central Highlands area, so I guess it's um you know, those that's those forests out there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's you know more than critical, really. It's the possums teetering on the edge of extinction. I'd say. Yep. Yeah. It's not great. Another one, another interesting item this week, a mob called Marsh, which are Marsh and McLennan, they're called in America, and they're the biggest insurance broker in the world, apparently. I didn't know much about them, I must admit. But they've been insuring Adani, 
and they've been attacked by environmental groups because they published a one-page sustainability policy that included no mention of the controversial Carmichael coal mine. So what was supposed to be a quite comprehensive report came down to one page, and it said they'd develop procedures to bolster our commitment to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, etc., but doesn't even mention the fact that they've got um, Adani on their books. And a group called Australian Ethical expects responsible financial institutions, this is a quote by their, their head, Stuart Palmer, expects responsible financial institutions to align their businesses with the Paris Climate Goals and to disclose how they achieve that alignment. And the, the unfortunate thing, you know, Friends of the Earth said that, um, or their, their subsidiary, that market forces, which tries to have, have impacts on, on boardrooms, said the Marsh statement was a pathetic attempt at greenwashing. But the worrying part is Macquarie, which you would expect Macquarie Bank, so you don't expect them to stand back. But Australian Super are the two biggest local investors in Marsh and McLennan, and uh, Australian Super has $280 million invested in the company, which I think is, is a bit of a problem. It's workers' super money, which are supporting I indirectly, at some point at least, the Adani coal mine. And the Australian Super spokesman said, for members who want the choice to invest, we offer the socially aware option, which does not hold Marsh and McLennan and the member direct option, but it's all right to say we offered other options where you're not investing in these companies, but I think super funds shouldn't be investing in these companies at all. Yeah. Ironically, the um, the socially aware superannuation options often do better, you know, in terms of returns than, than the more normal ones, if you know, know what I mean. Mm. But it's not the same. You're right. The whole superannuation industry should join the insurance industries and, and retreat from companies like Adani, yeah. And the whole idea of having anything to do with coal mining companies worldwide is, is now ridiculous. Yeah, especially when superannuation is compulsory for people and they have to, this money has to go into their superannuation accounts. I'm sure a lot, if not the, the majority of people, don't understand exactly how it works. And often individuals end up just that money going yep. in there and a lot of it goes in fees and charges and then the rest of it's invested in things that might not be ethically what they want to invest in. Putting, like, aside from the fact that the share market in itself is a problematic construction and yet we have to invest in it compulsorily, yeah, I've always thought that's pretty strange. Yep, that was the construct that Paul Keating, of course, our famous Labor Federal Treasurer put together. They've got every Australian involved with the share market for good or ill. Yeah. Yes, and, and if one had a suspicious mind, which one doesn't, of course, the fact that the government is now allowing people to take money out of their super to tide them over seems to me that it almost, given they've been attacking particularly industrial super funds for the last several years and trying to change it and get that money put into the hands of the banks and their mates, the fact that they want people to actually you know, tear down their, their super and take it out now, one could almost suspect there's a plot there to start destroying and affecting the, the super funds overall. But we'll, and, and unfortunately, I think, you know, I don't think any other government would have done that. I think at least a Labor government wouldn't have allowed people to take money out of their super now, which in the long term will hurt them quite seriously. Well, the issue is, is partly that the industry super funds, more than the privately owned ones, have, have tended to put um, investment into um, 
sort of physical um, constructions and things like that. Mm. And that's meant that it's, it's a little bit harder for the for the industry funds to get the money back to pay to these people who want their their ten thousand dollars. So it's 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 um, has put the um, industry super funds under a bit more stress, apparently. Although they claim they're quite okay, but it's you know as you say, Kevin, it could be construed as a as a way of white-anting the industry super funds. Yes. Yes, it could be if the, if one had a suspicious mind, John. That's right, Kevin. If one did. Yeah. Also, uh, a, a, a positive story in one way, but but not really, except that he might get Peter Dutton in the neck. Uh, we we commented a year or two ago now when a company called Paladin was offered that we've got the refugee services contract on Manus Island, and we pointed out that no one knew much about it except that its headquarters was a shed, a beach shack on Kangaroo Island, and it got this massive $532 million contract. The Auditor General has come out attacking it quite quite strongly and says that um, Australia has spent $7.1 billion on its offshore processing centres in Nauru and PNG since 2012. In PNG, the cost per refugee was about $450,000 each year. That's stunning, isn't it? When you think what they could do with that money to, to bring those people here and let them be part of our society. Mm. It's, um, it's quite astonishing. And it says, following the completion of negotiations, the parties agreed to a revised contract value of $229.5 million, representing an overall increase of $77.4 million. Uh, Paladin had initially proposed a profit margin of 40%, four times larger than the industry average identified by the department as part of the Nauru procurement process. It also says this contract represents a significant step up in size for Paladin, which represents a high risk for the Commonwealth. This is the financial officer in the department itself. He raised these concerns while the contract was being negotiated. He said the contract represents a significant step up in size for Paladin, which represents a high risk for the Commonwealth. The proposed 152 million contract was 25 times larger than Paladin's recorded revenue of 6 million. This, he said, highlighted the significance of the upscale required to fulfil the contract, pointing out that the reported 2 million line of credit looks to be insufficient under the circumstances. And Christina Keneally, well, she would, wouldn't she anyway, but the, the Labor spokesperson, she says the Auditor General's report paints a much different picture of Paladin than Peter Dutton and the government have tried to claim. So we can hope that one blows up when Parliament gets back or when they yeah, when things blow up, but... Uh, we commented at the time. Mm. I think I'm right in saying that Paladin didn't even have to tender. No. Well, according to the report, there were two or three other tenderers that weren't even considered, whom the, the implication is they would have been far better than Paladin, yes. Yeah. Well, where were their headquarters? And Paladin's was in a, in a beach shack. Where were the others if they weren't if they were uh, suitable? Well, that's right. <laughs> they were out on King Island somewhere growing, growing cheese. A dunny on a... <laughs> On an island down near the Antarctica or something. Yeah. Yes, floating around. Yeah. Another bit of disturbing news, we covered a few years ago quite regularly the Tacoma struggle to stop McDonald's getting there, which they eventually did, as they always do. They've now got a plan to move into Healesville, which has got a local group up in arms about that, claiming it's not the sort of area where you want a McDonald's. Maybe that's a bit elitist, but nonetheless, um, again, it's McDonald's moving into somewhere where there's a huge part of the population doesn't want them anywhere near the place. 
but it's currently before the Yarra Rangers um, Council and see what happens. But once again, there, there looks like a looming McDonald's struggle, I suspect, coming up there in that part of the world. Oh, it's the sort of thing that'll go to VCAT. And of course, VCAT never saw an, a development it didn't like. So. That's right. And uh, well, well, we'll see what happens. Also, quietly during this corona crisis in America, Trump is agreeing to sell another $12 billion of weapons to Saudi Arabia, uh, which we know hasn't, hasn't got a great record, uh, hasn't got a great record, but uh, it's been opposed by the, the Democrats are coming out and saying, we why give it to those people, they're butchers and murderers. But uh, oh, well, I think the Democrats have sold plenty of weapons to the Saudis in the past. Well, um, in, indeed, indeed they have, and um, we, it, you know, it's, it's, it dribbles with hypocrisy, doesn't it? But but there was a attempt by Congress to block it. But Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, invoked an obscure emergency procedure to push it through. So <laughs> they're taking. They're taking the defence of Saudi Arabia very seriously indeed over there. Mm. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, you'd never, never get in the way of a good arms sale, no. Well, it's, of course, oh, no. Australia's now joined the um, list of quite large um, sellers of arms and defence equipment, apparently. We're up there on the list of the top ten. Quite surprised by that. Well, Christopher Pine was anxious to get involved in the merchants of death business, yeah. He was, yes. Speaking of death, we've known again the last couple of years there's been stories coming out about how stonemasons are being diagnosed with disease and the state government has um, been doing screening. They screened 706 current and former stonemasons and about 100 are being diagnosed with that dreadful lung disease. Wow. Silicosis? It's a, it's a silicosis, yes, yes, but it's quite dreadful. and It's up there with um, diseases from asbestos. It's, um, yes, that's right. It's the similar, similar stuff. The same insidious thing. And, of course, ever since um, all modern kitchens had to have stone benchtops or not, you know, marble benchtops or other other sorts of stone. Apparently, that's when it really took off because so you know so many companies started to uh, be grinding stone into shape for bench bench tops. Yeah, that's right. Dry cutting, it's called, and that's been the problem in, in recent times. Yeah, it's sort of more convenient, but it's um, so dangerous. Yeah, and I, I think we can also feel a bit sad when we see good friends fall out, rather than the usual phrase "what people fall out" because they couldn't be called that. But John Gandell and Solomon Liu, it's an awful situation because <laughs> Solly Liu's refusing to pay rent to the landlords in the in the shopping complexes where he's got all his stores. And he's doing the same thing over there in America. But he's and now he's saying, well, when he does start paying rent, he'll pay it based on a percentage of his turnover rather than a fixed rental. Right. And John Gandell, you know, they're good mates, he and John, I'm sure, but John Gandell, who actually runs these you know, supermarkets, these big shopping complexes, is, is getting stuck into Solly and saying it's a terrible thing. He's, he's, he's <laughs> going to stop up the whole real estate industry. It's terrible. And so we're seeing these two very good friends, John and Solly, fall out. And I was just thinking to myself now, if it comes to the crunch, which one would we support, do you think? (laughs) I don't know, but I have an idea that maybe I'll pay rent at my house based on my income. Yes, that's a good idea. Yeah, do you think That's good. That that would bring your rent down to about zilch. (laughs) That's not strictly true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or when your in- 
some starts up again, of course, it'll go up a bit, but yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Well, mm, well it's, a, it's a lesson of the capitalist world, though, that when you're big enough, you know, you have some weight to throw around, you know. And uh, Sully's got so many shops and so many, super, uh, so many um, shopping centres that uh, he's got some push. Yeah, there was a, I've told it before on air, but there was a lovely cartoon in the Financial Review during the financial crisis in 2007 8 uh, when they were saying the banks had to be protected because they were too big to fail. And the cartoon was of a family sitting at the table with a little girl and the parents say, what do you want to be when you grow up, dear? And she said, I want to be too big to fail. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's that's it. But just well, we better move on to transport. But just before we go, there's been a number of benefits from um, Corona. Um, you'll be pleased to know that the Hain Royal Commission rules coming in, reforms coming in to try and restrain the banking sector have been put off because of the virus. That's uh, good for them. And they're also now saying company directors and executives providing profit guidance to share market investors will be relieved from continuous disclosure rules for the next six months, so they don't have to do anything about that. And on the other, on the side where universities are having great trouble getting their workers onto JobKeeper, the government last week ruled that private universities can, can in fact get JobKeeper, but the public universities can't. So places like Bond University will now start getting JobKeeper paid by the government, but places like Melbourne and Monash and La Trobe here will not. Hmm. So again, the private sector's uh, benefiting uh, in education as usual from the federal government. Thanks for the good news. That's great news. Look, there's one more thing I think worth mentioning. A, a woman called Gigi Foster, who's a professor at the Uni at NSW School of Economics, came up with a, an article last week, which I found quite amazing. She's saying that the lockdown was a big mistake. And she says the welfare costs of our economic policy responses have been either overlooked entirely, gestured towards vaguely, but not actually calculated or calculated in ways strikingly out of alignment with international best practice when estimating the welfare costs of different policy alternatives. For example, using full value of a statistical life, VSL, numbers, rather than age-adjusted VSL or quality-adjusted life years when valuing lives lost to COVID-19, which are predominantly the lives of older people with a few years, not an entire life left to live. And so she's really saying, because it's the oldies, haven't got much longer to live anyway, I'm going to die. We shouldn't have the lockdown. We should just keep going about our business. That's what she seems to be saying. It's quite amazing. She's a bit of a number, that one. She has a program on um, ABC uh, Radio National once a week. Oh, does she? I didn't. Yeah, okay. This is a good example of how ageism operates because um, prejudice against older people are it's often um, very insidious and isn't sort of um, recognised as ageism. But the idea that an older person inherently, just because they're older, that their life has less value is, is a very explicit outcome of the, just the general way that productivity is valued and youth is valued and the contributions of older people are seen as negligent because they're not part of the production cycle within capitalism and within an economy that they're seen as a burden yeah it just shows the way that we the way that we've accepted 
as a society, this idea that people who are valuable must be producing something and can't can't possibly be contributing to society in other ways. That's right. John and I are burdens. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yes. <laughs> well, you know, you guys are, but you're, you're oh, generally all people are fine. <laughs> <laughs> Look, on that happy note, let's take a break, come back, and then we'll talk some transport with John. You're listening to City Limits. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Did you know that polluting companies want to drill for oil and gas off the southwest coast of Victoria? Offshore drilling is bad for the climate, bad for marine life, and bad for tourism. These communities are already being hit hard by COVID-19 travel restrictions. And while we might not be able to flock to the coast to rally just yet, we can gather online to resist new fossil fuel developments. Stay in and paddle out this World Oceans Day and join us for a virtual paddle out to say no to new gas in Victoria. It's easy and creative to get involved. Jump onto melbourne.fo.org.au and check out how you can get involved in this fun and creative action at home. Together, we can work with the local community to ensure that we can stop these destructive new developments. See you online on World Oceans Day, June 8, as we stay in and paddle out for a climate justice future. 
Friends of the Earth is a proud sponsor of 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. All right, back on City Limits, and and it's um, John McPherson. John McPherson, our regular monthly commentator on transport issues. And John, um, you've got a few things on here you want to talk about. I'll leave you talk about them. Oh, well, let's start with an um, interesting uh, article in yesterday's age, the Sunday age. We're recording this on Monday. I think people realise that these days. Yeah, yeah. The su- it was in the Sunday age. And the North East Link, that's that huge, huge road project plan for the... Um, out of northeast, which will finish the ring road. Apparently, because of its scale and the way it'll concentrate traffic and generate lots more traffic, it's going to be a serious pollution hazard in that northeast area, more so than previous road projects because of the scale of the northeast link and the way it's going to concentrate traffic. Um, I suppose particularly around Bulleen, where there's going to be this absolutely humongous interchange between the um, eastern freeway uh, and the outer, outer ring road. Of course, another factor is that Australia has very poor or non-existent um, pollution controls on its fossil-fueled uh, motor fleet, and uh, we're, we've got the worst controls probably of any, any developed country. And, of course, we're also turning out to be extremely slow in bringing in electric vehicles to replace fossil fuel vehicles. So in every way, we seem to be um, happily generating a a huge pollution problem for the future. Yes, and, of course, as you say, that's 20 or 21 lanes when it meets the eastern freeway there in the the Coonung Valley, which has already been destroyed anyway by the eastern freeway. Uh, But... The 21 lanes mean that any future possibility of a railway line to Doncaster, which that that's uh, set aside for originally anyway, will now never happen. Mm. Uh, it puts an end to any possibility of a rail line from Doncaster yep, to the city. Yep. Yeah, well, I, I'm afraid that when they build a road of this huge size, you know, they're going to feel that they've got an investment that's got to pay for itself by tra- carrying as much traffic as possible. And so the idea of putting in a rail line to compete with it won't really be a possibility. Yeah, it's really the scale the scale of the whole thing is what's pretty mad. And, of course, now we've had the experience with the virus, which has, you know, caused lots of people to work from home and, and has caused a lot less driving and a lot less travel of all kinds to go on. Maybe all the projections for future for future travel, particularly by car, are questionable. You know whether whether we'll need a project of this huge size, things like that. You know. Yeah, I mean another item going. It's a related item going on at the moment is that the motor industry itself and worldwide is saying that even though sales have dropped dramatically because of coronavirus, they can see light at the end of because less people will want to use public transport and more people will want cars. So the car industry is saying there might be more cars on the road when it all settles down. Well, yeah, that's the other way it could go. And of course, that'll that'll then cause the the current pro-car lobby, which is still very big, to argue that we need even more roads. Which of course mm. is all going in completely the wrong direction if we're going to if we're going to deal with greenhouse emissions and you know make society more um, sustainable in that way. On the other hand, something else that has happened is that 
bicycle network, the peak body for cyclists, has been commenting on the fact that they estimate that uh, there's been a 270% increase in bike path use in some cities since the coronavirus pandemic started. And I think people are cycling, obviously, to avoid public transport, but also I think probably something that may be happening is people are just just staying more locally. I don't have any statistics on that, but, you know, just from seeing my own neighbourhood, yeah. um, that certainly seems to be the case. And the fact that people are working from home, they don't need to be driving to commute to work. Mm. They can be cycling to for exercise or they can be cycling to get somewhere um, rather than driving, which, again, shows how important planning is in terms of making cities walkable and, and cycle-friendly. But Bicycle Network are pushing for governments to invest in, in bicycle infrastructure to support the fact that, that there's this increase in the uptake of cycling. Well, in Melbourne, it does seem that the only market where um, public transport does pretty well is, is carrying workers to the, to the CBD for work. That's where the, the proportion of people who travel to work by public transport is, is the largest. And if people are going to start working more locally and, and, and large companies are even going to abandon the CBD because they've discovered, you know, through the period um, with the virus that, that they don't need to be in the city or that far more of their workers can work from home. All of this sort of suggests that the market for public transport, at least, you know, trains and trams and buses, may be smaller in the future. But it certainly doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to improve active transport, particularly, you know, bike networks and uh, walking networks. They should and could become more, more important in the future. So it's, it's really likely to be quite an interesting period after people start returning to work, if they do start returning to work in centralised um, concentrations or whether they, they stay working from home or, or working more locally. Um, it could really change the way the city operates. And one of the alarming things is that a lot of these possibilities suggest more people will want to and be able to go to work by car if they're not heading for the CBD where it's hard to get in because of get in there because of um, congestion on the roads and it's hard to park because of the cost. So you know all these things put a question mark over over public transport. It seems to me. And what do we know about the effect on on workers in that? industry because there's a few weeks ago there was the news out of Sydney that unions were threatening to strike because they felt that their their workers didn't have enough um, considerations for their safety Mm. but if if we're looking at a downturn in public transport more generally it looks like people will be losing their jobs. Yeah well exactly it's it's uh, even with the um, percentage of people using public transport to get the work declining that doesn't mean there won't need to be workers operating the public transport, for one thing. And they are, of course, often being exposed quite quite markedly to the possibility of infection, driving buses or perhaps less so trains, but certainly buses, and um, not on modern trams where, where the um, driver's sealed away. Mm. But there's all sorts of station staff. There's lots of, lots of other staff on, on the rail network who are, you know, on the, on the platforms with passengers and things like that. So, yeah, it's all quite difficult and you can see why people want 
to travel in their own little sealed box in their own car if they can, um, because they feel they feel more secure from exposure. So the actual capacity of the public transport system will be lower too if if the distancing regulations are you know really applied on trains and trams and buses. There was one estimate I saw that suggested the capacity would only be about 15% of what you get on a crowded peak hour vehicle um, if everybody was going to be separated by the you know 1.5 metres or, the, or whatever the, um, the latest statistic is. Well, using four square metres on public transport is the figure, but yeah. Uh, they, they're saying in the last week there were about 389,000 trips on public transport which is about 18% of normal levels, and they say that 15% is about the ideal for distancing. So if that's the case and people have to start using it again, mm. they're going to have to run a lot more services, aren't they, if they're going to distance people on public transport? Well, certainly in the peak periods, all the modes are pretty stretched as it is. You know, the, you know, the number of... They're running all the vehicles they can run already to, you know, to carry normal, normal pre-virus peak hour loads. There aren't many many more vehicles around to add add to the service and often the tra- often the tracks and things don't have the capacity to run more trains anyhow mm. so um i don't think they've got the capacity to spread everybody out if if the number of people wanting to use the trains trams and buses goes up if you see what i'm getting at <laughs> i can but it's a problem isn't it it's go- it could it's going to become a problem yeah I know the government's been been uh, murmuring about staggered working hours. Well, that that has obvious always been an obviously good idea, but it's but it's never been implemented in any determined way in the past. But that would be one way to take away the peak loads on the um, the networks, and that should be a good thing for um, trying to give people you know the space and and avoid overcrowding. But it's not clear to what degree it can happen. But he's hoping I can do something on that front. Mm. On that same front, the the private companies which run it on behalf of us uh, are crying out for more money, and they say, in fact, they may have to get. They want fifty million dollars, uh, and indeed, one of the it doesn't say which one, but one company has threatened to hand back the keys. That is, just tear up the contract. I assume if they don't get more government funding. Uh, because of the impact of corona on their income. Yep. Well, quite a large proportion of their income in the past has come straight from the fare box. And so obviously if the number of people using the system has has collapsed, their fare, fare box um, income is going to collapse as well. So I suppose they still want their profit margin, you know, uh, out of somebody and that somebody is going to be the government. Yeah, and we said last month, we, we talked about this last month, saying they probably would start screaming for money, mm. but it indicates that the government would have saved a hell of a lot more money if it owned it itself, because it would lose the money in the fare box that's not coming in, but it wouldn't be losing any more money over and above too much, uh, or as much as this anyway, that it has to pro- also provide these companies with their profits, John. <laughs> well, if you if you want to set these things up as, you know, markets and, um, you know, you know, you know, a super capitalist way. This is the sort of, this is the sort of mess you can get yourself into when, of course, things you know go bad. And uh, you know, in a in a real market, the the company would have to um, 
suck it up. But uh, of course, it's not a real market. It's it's a it's a fake market that um, suits the convenience of a lot of the players. But uh, you know, it's not really um, it's not really real, but you know, convenient. Yeah, so again, it's one of the uh, one of the problems of privatisation. In fact, a, a related one in terms of it is transport. The Melbourne Port, which was privatised uh, by our treasurer, is one of the great ideas for getting uh, for getting money into the public coffers. And the the port now is is owned by private companies. But since it was privatised, since 2017, when they charged. Three dollars fifty for each container they handle. It's gone up to yeah. between eighty and one hundred and twenty-five, an increase of more than three thousand percent. And the stevedoring companies are screaming and yelling. But it's a, a yet another example of the impact of privatisation. Yeah, well, it's um, fascinating. I mean, I think um, the airports are in the same sort of situation. They mm. seem to they seem to be able to take the whole uh, market markets. Well, you know, all the shipping. Shipping lines and stevedoring companies are at their mercy because they're um, private monopolies. Basically, the ports and the airports, you know, in the end, they turn into private monopolies when that when they're uh, when they're privatised. And of course, the argument was for a hundred years that you uh, kept them in government ownership because you didn't want to have private monopolies in these situations. <laughs> exactly, but. The, the minister, Melissa Horne, who's the appropriate minister, said um, the government was working to make the port more efficient and cost-effective. Last year, we conducted a comprehensive review of port pricing, which showed a lack of pricing transparency. We're now ensuring there is greater accountability through the introduction of voluntary standards and reporting of prices. Voluntary standards is a bit of a worry, but one might have thought that a government anxious to make sure it didn't go, didn't go awry might have thought of that before they signed the contract. Yeah, well, exactly the same issues have arisen with the airports. They are um, able to um, um, pretty much tell governments to go jump when they don't like some of the things that look like obvious, um, sensible improvements to the airports. And then the government, if the government wants something to happen, it's got to basically bribe these private ent- entities to, uh, ha- you know, to improve the facility. Mm. It's... Um, yeah, it's it's a bizarre situation. It would be interesting to see what the increase was in wages for the workers in those mm. uh, industries during the same time that, that uh, the cost increased by that huge yep. amount. I think you can assume that the wages have gone up no more than the um, average, what is it, around 3% a year, something like that for Australian workers. Not 3,000%, John. No. <laughs> no, weirdly. No, indeed. Don't worry. It's um, a fascinating situation. Yeah. Can we talk about high-speed rail, Kevin, for a minute? Yeah, I was going to that next. Actually, um, that's well, you've raised it. The, there's a report come out in the last week or so from the Grattan Institute about mm. bullet trains and high-speed rail in Australia. John. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's a, it's a it's a very very trenchant anti-high-speed rail report. It's it's made every every extreme assumption that it's possible to make to make high speed rail look impossible. Uh, it's one of those you know interesting reports that it, quite obviously you knew where it was going the moment you started reading it. Well, it's called fast train fever. That gives it away, doesn't well, it? Well, exactly. <laughs> yes, and it's taken 
it took the last um, Commonwealth um, Government report, which was also a report that was written in the style of how much can we make this system cost by making the most, you know, absurd estimates about the cost of everything. Um, and the, the Grattan Institute, because it's got the same attitude, it doesn't want to build it. It's um, it's taken the same the same attitudes and the same figures to uh, design its uh, uh, system. Yeah, um, if you look at the cost of what these things cost in China, they they probably cost about a tenth of the costs of of um, the, the 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 Grattan Institute and the previous Commonwealth government report used to estimate estimate the costs of building the system. It basically um, doesn't even entertain really that regional upgrades of rail to faster speeds in regions would be much use either. It seems to take the whole idea of improving rail as being um, basically uh, uh, not something worth entertaining in Australia. Weird that it's worth entertaining everywhere else in the world, including even in North America. We we saw. I think we are left with this report asking, well, why why is Australia so different? You know, that uh, that, that nothing nothing along those lines is worth doing. That the est there are estimates that it could take fifty years to build the line from Sydney to Melbourne. You know, well that again, if you look at what it, the time it takes them to build things in China, and even if you double or triple the time it takes to build things in China for our situation. It would be less than a decade then to build a line from Sydney to Melbourne. You know, we're, we're supposed to be so uh, pathetic that we, we 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 take you know decades and decades to build things, and that's that seems that seems ridiculous. If you even look at what's happened here in Melbourne with the um, level crossing removal, when when the system got going, these level crossing removals have been done. You know, each one's been done in a matter of months. Uh, only a couple of months in many cases. You know, it is, it is interesting what can be done when yeah. people really want things to happen fast. Yeah. Well, they, they, they indeed, they pulled their finger out on that to make sure there was the disruption didn't last too long. Of mm. course, that's that was their yeah. reason. Yeah. But they, they make a pretty amazing comment. They say that um, that it warns against taking on face value the emissions reduction benefits of rail over air travel. A bullet train would hinder other than help efforts to reach net zero emissions by 2050. How do, how do they come up with that? Well, one? again, they assume that concrete will always be built, well, made in the way it's made at the moment, which is, which is granted, very greenhouse intensive, greenhouse gas intensive. But there are already, um, you know, have been, been found far more environmentally friendly ways to make concrete or make material very similar to concrete that does all the same things as concrete but doesn't generate anything like the greenhouse gas. So, you know, it is obviously where the world's construction industries will move, have to move. And so presumably in Australia we'd do the same. We would be using this far more environmentally um, friendly concrete. The same with steel. Um, they're again assuming, oh, yeah, we'll continue to make steel exactly the same way it's made now. Well, no, we probably won't because there are already techniques to make steel using electricity generated by um, solar, solar and wind, you know, renewable electricity. So they, that blows out of the water, two of the big criticisms they've got. And I think, I think they've also been too kind to the other modes. 
I mean, in Sydney, for instance, they're starting work on a huge, huge new airport. Now, that huge new airport wouldn't be needed if the fast rail was um, under development and happening. Mm. And, and, uh, and, of course, it's not being built with the renewable, renewable concrete, although it could be. So, you know, that, 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 that's a whole area that I think that I haven't accepted that the, the future will be different to the present. They're really adopting the whole the view of the, our current government that, you know, nothing's going to change, that we're going to continue to, to be the greenhouse, um, you know, one of the, one of the worst emitters uh, of greenhouse gases forever. And, of course, you know, the thing about high-speed trains is they're electric and they run on power generated by renewable means. And so they are, you know, probably, they certainly are the lowest emitter of, of greenhouse um, pollution of any uh, high-speed um, travel mode. You know, the, the um, high-speed networks have been very successful in Europe, Japan, of course, South Korea. Oh, you know, they are around everywhere. And there is no reason why the network, say, connecting Sydney and Melbourne, wouldn't also provide high-speed travel for the cities in between. There's no reason why you can't, you know, have trains that travel non-stop between Sydney and Melbourne and do the trip in under three hours. But you can also have trains that that stop at a number of intermediate stations and possibly take four hours. And so a whole a whole great swathe of Australia's population that lives in the the broad general corridor between between Melbourne and Sydney then gets the benefits. But again, I think that the Grattan report pretty much ignores the fact that, that, that there are a whole lot of other cities that would benefit on the, on the route as well. Yeah, they also say most high-speed rail projects do not recover their operating costs and only two have recovered their construction costs, one in Japan and the France Paris to Lyon line, according to the Institute. So again, they're looking at public transport purely in terms of profit. Yeah as opposed to its other benefits, clearly, that there's other benefits in terms of cars off the road, tra- planes off the, out of the air, health costs, all the other things well, that Kevin, come into it. Kevin, did you know that ever since the beginning of aviation, back with the Wright brothers, if you do the cal- overall calculation on aviation, aviation has never made a profit. Aviation has always been a, a, a net loss to the economies of the world. But we see that as so important that, that um, we uh, continue to happily finance it. Look at the way so many airlines at the moment, again with the virus, are in dire, dire financial straits. And they're all turning turning happily to their governments and saying, bail us out, bail us out. And this is huge international airlines that we've always imagined were very, very stable and very well, well, well financed. It seems like a very financially oriented report since I, it seems like it also refers to the fact that yeah. taxpayers in like places that aren't on the East Coast will be um, paying you know, $10,000 per taxpayer or something like that to, to make this. Well, you know, the same, the same issue applies to any, any large, large project. Um, exactly. You know, the... Um, yeah. There's the other boondoggle that seems to be going to happen, and that's the hydro um, generation scheme in the in the Snowy Mountains. You know, the new one that's going to um, mm. be used to uh, provide you know storage, electricity storage. The water uphill one. Yeah, that's it. The water uphill one. Turnbull, Turnbull's baby. 
Now that's gone up in costs from two billion to ten billion in a matter of about three or four years, three years, I think. And there are many, many experts in the area that say it's not, it's not at all a um, sensible concern to build. There are probably batteries, huge batteries, are going to be cheaper and better to do the same job. But that that won't stop it happening. It's grinding along now, and it's probably going to happen. And that's mainly because it's a um, a glamour project for the politicians, and so the same sort of thing happens all all the time. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that the the rail should necessarily, you know, be built built at you know any cost, but the kind of costs being quoted by the Grattan Institute are outrageous when you when you see what the cost of similar projects overseas. We're going to have to wind up there, guys. Sorry, um, we've reached the end of the show. Out of time, John. Out of time, yes. More next month. There's always things in transport, so more next month. (laughs) Always plenty to talk about. And Meg, you can can wind up, tell people we're doing energy issues next week. Oh, but we should finish up by pointing out in June, it is the usual Radiothon month for 3CR, but we can't have a normal Radiothon, but we do ask people to contribute, and we'll do more of that in the rest of the month to 3CR just to keep us on air. That's right. Yes, the 3CR station appeal is going to happen in June and it's a tough time with coronavirus and um, a lot of people facing a lot of financial uncertainty in their own lives. Um, But of course, 3CR has been affected as well. And as you say, Kevin, we usually have our subscriber drive or our um, radiothon. Radiothon. Yeah, instead of that, we're having a station appeal and just asking people who can contribute to please do. And you can go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, and um, you can donate from there. And you can also listen back to this show on 3cr.org.au slash city limits. You can download it in your podcast app and you can listen to us live on uh, 8.55am. Rightio. And Meg, thank, um, thank Karina for doing a great job. <laughs> thank you, Karina. And thank you, John, for coming in on the show today. Thanks, Karina. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.